We're in Exodus 20 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. And for those of you who are Bible scholars, you'll know that Exodus 20 is one of the places in the Bible where you find the Ten Commandments. And that's the series of sermons that we're going to be going through for the next several months here at First Presbyterian Church. We began this series a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the prologue to the Ten Commandments, just verses 1 and 2. And we decided to call this series of sermons The Good Life. And we're calling it the good life because the good life of honoring God, following God, living by faith in God, being obedient to God, is a life that produces abundant joy. It produces content Christian living. It's the good life. And so we don't lay hold of joy by pursuing joy as an end in and of itself. We lay hold of joy by producing God as our our chief end, by by pursuing Him as our chief end. And we find the way in which we do that, the, the blueprint for that, so to speak, in the Ten Commandments. And so in the Ten Commandments, God is clearly commanding something of us. He's putting demands upon our lives, but we have to remember the context in which the, first, the, the Ten Commandments are given to us. The Ten Commandments are given to us in the context of God's gracious work for His people. You remember that the Israelites had been in bondage to the Egyptians for 400 years, and God had come to them, not by any merit in and of themselves, but He had come to them because He's a promise-keeping God. And He promised to bring them into the promised land, to make them a people for His own possession. So He comes and He releases them from this insurmountable hope, at least from a human perspective, and brings them out of the land of Egypt, and they're now in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And it's called the Exodus. And the Exodus is a physical representation of what happens to each person who no longer trusts in themselves but begins to trust in Jesus Christ alone. That is what happens as a spiritual reality in the life of every Christian who looks to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has come to save them, to release us from bondage. What is it that he saved us from? He saved us from the condemnation that our sin deserves. He's saved us from bondage to the one whose purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy us, as as Jesus says in John chapter 10. He's saved us into himself, and he's saved us to go to a promised land with an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. And all of that comes to us purely by grace alone. It's purely by God's grace that we get that. Nothing in us merits salvation. It's the free gift of the gospel. But my friends, the gospel is the free gift that costs you everything. It's the free gift that costs you everything because if we have received the grace that God has given to us in the gospel to set us free from bondage, then there are implications for the way in which we're going to live. This God who saved us is holy. This God who saved us is righteous and just and good and true. And in the gospel, when we receive Jesus Christ, he pours all of that into us. He credits us with the very holiness and the very righteousness that he has. That's the only reason why we're able to stand before God the Father in the first place. And so because he's placed that into our lives and indwelt the Holy Spirit into us, our lives are are to produce a holiness and righteousness that looks as if we belonged to God. And so that's what the picture of the Ten Commandments is. It's a picture of what Jesus has accomplished for us. You look at these Ten Commandments, you can't obey them 
perfectly in any stretch of the imagination, but you know that one has for you, and it's your mediator, Jesus Christ. And he's poured out all of that into our lives. And the Ten Commandments also show us the shape, the contour of what the Christian life ought to look like. And so we come to the very first commandment this morning. We're going to be looking at the first commandment today, and we're going to be looking at the first commandment next week. It's deep. It's all over Scripture. We even saw elements of it in in Blake's Sunday school class this morning. We're going to see what the first commandment is calling us to do and receive and what it's calling us to reject and avoid this morning. In fact, all the commandments do that. Whether they're stated positively or negatively, there's something in, us that, something in the commandment that it is calling us to do and something in it that it is calling us to avoid. And so we're going to see that here in the first commandment this morning. And next week, we're going to discover several practical ways in which this commandment gets lived out in the Christian life in America in the 21st century. We're going to discover a little bit more of that next week. So with that rambling introduction out of the way... Let's take a moment now to read God's Word from Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. This is God's Word to us this morning. Well, one of the things that seems to be part of humanity's natural condition, this is true of everybody regardless of where you live or what your age is or any of those things that we consider to be important, one of the things that's common to humanity is that we all tend to latch on to something that gives us meaning in life, that that gives shape to our lives, that helps us justify our existence and make sense out of the world. We, we sort of marry ourselves to certain things or to certain people that show us what to do and how we are to live and to give us a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And in fact, I read an essay in the Wall Street Journal just about a month ago that brought this idea to me in one of the most poignant ways that I think I've seen in a long time. It was the Saturday essay in the Wall Street Journal. It was written by Amy Chua. And Amy Chua is a law professor at the Yale University Law School. And she wrote this essay, which was entitled, Why Chinese Mothers Are Superior. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, I'm not sure what will. It got my attention. And she's talking here about how she's raising her two daughters, Sophia and Louisa. And she tells us that those two daughters, who are now teenagers, were never allowed to attend a sleepover, never allowed to have a play date. They could not be in a school play. They couldn't complain about not being in a school play. They were never allowed to watch TV or play computer games. They could never choose their own extracurricular activities. Couldn't just decide they wanted to be on the volleyball team. Weren't allowed to do that. They could not get any grade less than an A. They were not allowed to be anything less than the number one student in every class that they took, except for gym and drama. They could, they had to, they could not play any other instrument other than the violin or the piano. And they were not allowed not to play the violin or the piano. So kids, if you think you have a tough, just think that you could have that mom for your mom. 
That's a tough mom right there. She brings up the story of her daughter when she was seven years old. Her daughter was, of course, playing the piano, and she's playing this elaborate, challenging piece by this famous French composer where the right hand had to keep a different rhythm on the piano than the left hand. And so she practiced piano every day for at least three hours. And she just couldn't get this piece down. And so eventually her daughter just stomps off and gives up on it. And the mom refused to let her. And so she threatened her daughter with no dinner, no Christmas presents, no birthday presents, nothing like that, until she had the piece down perfectly for her recital that was coming up the next day. And she called her daughter, quote, lazy, cowardly, self-indulgent, and pathetic. She said that to her seven-year-old. And so in a battle of wills, her daughter rips up the piano score and throws it on the ground. Mom picks it up, tapes it all back together, and ensconces it in this little plastic cover and makes her get down and play that piece. But the girl refused to play it. And so the mom goes and packs up her dollhouse, puts it in the car, and threatens to take it off to the Salvation Army unless she has that piece down perfectly by her recital the next day. And she forced, and she forced, and she forced, and it's, they miss dinner, and it's getting to be late into the night, almost midnight, and finally, her daughter gets the piano piece. She gets it down perfectly. You know, Amy Chua, in reading her essay here about her daughter, about how she raises her children, is trying to show us that the ethos behind those rules, behind what Chinese mothers, at least in her definition of it, are trying to do, is that they believe that their children can be the very best. Not just good at something, but the best at something. And that their children become truly happy, not by massaging their self-esteem or trying to take care of their emotional and social well-being. It actually comes by pushing them to the very, very limits until they become the best student and best pianist out of the whole bunch. Now, as you can imagine, that essay provoked wild outrage. In fact, if you look on the Wall Street Journal right now, there are over 7,800 comments about this story, about this article that she wrote. And the very next Saturday, the Wall Street Journal ran another Saturday essay entitled, In Defense of the Guilty, Ambivalent, Preoccupied Western Mom. So knowing a little bit about what the Bible has to say about people and just simple observation of them made me wonder if there wasn't something more than just the altruistic notion that she wants her child to be the very best that is kind of motivating all of this stuff that she was doing in the life of her seven-year-old daughter. Like, just maybe, maybe Amy Chua lives a little bit vicariously through her daughter that her daughter's success is what communicates success to her, what communicates to her that she is valuable. Her life, her identity, her hope, her contentment in life, in many respects, is built on the back of this seven-year-old little girl trying to learn a piano piece that most professional musicians have colossal difficulty mastering. It's interesting to figure out what is motivating a mom like that. But I think as far as you and I are concerned, we need to figure out what our own motivations are. What 
it is that we are attaching ourselves to and binding ourselves to for meaning and significance. What it is that's ultimate to us. See, I think that most of the circles that you and I travel in are probably going to be full of people who think that it's good to challenge your child to do well in school and to care for their emotional well-being and their social well-being. And everybody has some basic human desires and basic human wants that are very good. We have wants and needs like fulfillment in our job and our relationships and success in what it is that we do in life some measure of comfort and security. Everybody has those wants, and those are all good wants, good things. Adam and Eve had all of those things perfectly in the garden. And we will have them to even a greater degree of perfection in the full when we go to heaven. But the question we have to ask is, where is it, what is the point at which those good things cross the line and become evil things? Become sources of our identity. Become God's so to speak, to us. Well, I think we discover when we look in the Bible, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, you'll see what Paul has to say about this. And he seems to say that it crosses the line when we find ourselves exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. So in other words, he's saying that it crosses the line when a very good desire in our life, something that's part of God's common grace to us, something that we may even need, it crosses the line when it becomes an ultimate thing in our life, when it becomes the the source of what gets us out of bed in the morning and causes us to want to have a reason to live, and it becomes the chief desire of our life. The Bible calls that idolatry. It's the placing of anything in the place of 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 what God is the only one to occupy. It's replacing God with something else. And idolatry, my friends, has every single thing to do with the first commandment. That's what it's all about. When food or drink or money or sex or success or any of those things becomes what you ultimately attach yourself to, you can be sure that you're an idolater and that you have built your life on some kind of substitute for God himself. And the first commandment prohibits idolatry. It refuses to allow you to go in that direction. And maybe you think that and you, and you think, well, that's good because I'm not necessarily prone to worship a totem pole or a golden calf like those primitive people did way back in the day in the Old Testament. But the reality is, is that from the point of view of the Bible, Every single one of us, there's not one person here this morning who is not guilty of idolatry. We're all guilty of it. Because idolatry is not simply worshiping a golden calf. It's taking a good thing in your life and making it something that you cannot live without. That's what idolatry is. It's replacing the worship of the one true and living God with something that is communicating to you that it itself is a God. It makes promises to you, even though it lacks all of the qualities of God himself. Martin Luther actually said in his little catechism that a God is that to which we look for for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. 
Whatever that is in your life, whatever it is that you look for or look to for all good and find refuge in during your time of need, that's the object of your worship. You may be sitting here this morning, but that's the object of your worship. That is your God. And so, those things make promises to you. They promise to bless you to the degree that you follow their rules. And they promise to curse you to the degree that you don't. See, if, if your God is how you look, your appearance, something of that nature, then what you're going to have to do is dress the part, aren't you? You have to dress the part. You're going to have to have the right clothes, the right look. You're going to have to obey the commandments of fashion. And if you want to find out what the Ten Commandments of Fashion are, just Google it. They're out there. You'll find them. There are Ten Commandments or Five Commandments, and Commandments for Men, Commandments for Women, Commandments for Children, Commandments for Old People, Young People, People in Between, all different types of commandments for how you're supposed to look. And if you follow those commandments, you're blessed and to the degree that you don't, you're cursed. On the way back from California this week, I kid you not, we were sitting right next to a couple of teenage girls. They were Amish which just amazed me that Amish people were on an airplane in the first place. But that's another sermon for another day. But these, these two teenage girls, they were Amish, and they were dressed in this you know, head-to-toe, moo-moo-looking thing. I mean, it, it was something unlike anything I'd ever seen. And they had this head covering on that kind of looked like they were the lunch lady at the local elementary school. And they were just dressed in a completely different way than everybody else at the airport that day. And I was sitting there thinking about them, thinking that people would be looking at these young ladies and just be putting them on the fringes because their clothing, their appearance, put them right on the fringes. They were not in the mainstream of what they, the society tells them that they are supposed to wear. And I could just picture every woman who saw these girls waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat after having had a nightmare that they had been caught in public wearing what these girls had been wearing. But the question in the first place is, why would someone have a nightmare about that in the first place? Why would they have a nightmare about it? Because in our heart of hearts, we know that we are blessed to the degree that we keep the commandments of fashion or the commandments of anything for that matter, and we're cursed to the degree that we do not. We have to serve perfectly whatever it is that is ultimate to us, whether it be fashion or work or family or anything for that matter. And God is saying here in the first commandment that he will have no rival. He will have no rival. He will not tolerate it. He will not tolerate anything replacing itself or substituting itself for God. You cannot make God ultimate and something else ultimate at the same time. In fact, Jesus tells us this, doesn't he? He tells the guy, you cannot serve both God and money. And maybe you think, well, yes, I can. I can do that. I'm here this morning. I'm worshiping Jesus Christ. And I can do that. And I can also worship and serve my money, my job, my desires, all of those things. I can, I can serve all of those things and have Jesus too. And in the first commandment, what God is telling you is that no, 
You can't do that. You cannot compartmentalize your life like that. You cannot do the good Christian thing and show up at church and sing a few songs and listen to a long, drawn-out sermon and then connive at work and gossip about your friends at school and spend your time and money and energy doing just whatever it is that you please to fulfill the desires that you have in your life without any regard to God whatsoever. See, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he did not say that we are to love the Lord our God with some of our heart and a little bit of our mind and a good bit of our strength and some of our mind. He said we're to love him with all of those things. Completely. It's exclusive. Radical singular worship of the one true and living God. So it's commanded of you and me in the first commandment. So positively, we're to worship God with everything that is within us, our mind, our desires, and our affections. It means just what we saw a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Romans chapter 12, that in view of the abundant, saving, second-by-second mercy that Jesus Christ has poured out upon us in the Gospel, we're to respond to that grace by doing what? Offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and no longer being conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So positively, it means that every aspect of our life is fully, always, and in every way to be given over not to some impersonal, crass dictator who doesn't have our best interests in mind. It's to be given over fully, always, and in every way to the God who loved us and gave himself for us. That's what it's calling us to do. And what it's calling us to avoid is every other thing that would compete and challenge for himself, that would seek to substitute itself in his place. So how's that for a piece of cake commandment? Can we all go home now and feel like we can probably do that for the rest of this week? Let's try it. Come back next week. We'll talk and see how it works out for us. This is a challenging commandment. And the reason why it's so challenging is because you and I are awash in idolatry. It's all over our lives in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. John Calvin rightly said that our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. That means that we're making new ones all the time. We're taking existing idols and we're, we're getting creative. We're inventing new things all the time. So think about it in your life. Underneath all of your quests and your endeavors, what is it saying about what you love the most? What do you desire the most? What do you want the most? What are you striving for the most? When your mind doesn't have anything else to think about, what does it go to? What do you think about the most? What is it that paralyzes you with anxiety? What, about, what area of your life feels empty and needs to be filled with just the right thing in order to feel like your life is worth living? Y'all, I have a bunch of them. We would die of old age if I told you about what they all are. 
but I'm just going to tell you about one of them in my life. I have an idol of, and it's an idol that probably many of you have and almost every single minister has, and that idol is the idol of human approval. It's, it's something that I am married to in many respects. I attach myself to it. For me, it is worth getting out of bed in the morning and leaving my house to the degree that certain people love me, respect me, appreciate me, value what I do and who I am. And because it's a God, I have to follow whatever rules that idol of approval makes upon my life. In order to, and, and so I have to follow the, the, the rules in that respect to, do, to make my wife, you guys, my friends, colleagues, whatever it is, whoever it is, to approve of me. And there are actually sacrifices that I'm willing to make in my own life in order to get that approval. I'll give up certain things in order to get that approval. And if I fail, or if someone rejects me, then I find myself tending to feel like the total schmuck of the universe. So rejection and lack of acceptance and not being loved and appreciated, those are things that are nightmarish to me. And see, part of that is all there by human nature. It's called your sinful nature. I was born with it. I was conceived with it. It was always there. But it's been reinforced by certain experiences in my life where I may have let somebody down or didn't meet my own expectations or failed my parents or teachers or friends or whatever. And I sensed a feeling of disapproval. And that disapproval was so hellish to me because I had built my life upon approval and it had cursed me that it penetrated my soul. And so now I seek to do anything and everything I can to try to avoid that feeling of disapproval again. That's what I have to fight against all the time. That's what concerns me about Amy Chua's little girl. It concerns me about her because it seems like something in her family culture is telling her that you're valued on the basis of your performance on the basis of how good you are at something. And so her mom is hardwiring in that little girl something that already exists in her from the moment that she was conceived. And as that little girl grows up into a woman, she's going to value herself on the basis of how well she is approved by other people, how well her performance is accepted by others. See, human approval is an idol for me that I have to seek to destroy every day all the time. It tells me it's a God, even though it's no God at all. I am tempted to worship it. But I don't go about dismantling it by just going to the opposite extreme and saying, well, who cares what other people think about me? I don't care what they think. I don't care about other people. I'm just going to do as I please. That's not the right answer. See, there's a process to it. And the process works by smashing that idol and by smashing it, by remembering what God said in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. That the Lord my God brought me out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And I see what Jesus did with that, that that He brought me out of sin and condemnation and bondage and hopelessness and has set me free and given me the hope of glory and He's done it not on the basis of what I do, but on the basis of what He has done for me. 
See, the answer is to build a life upon the grace and the promises of Jesus Christ, the one who, as I said, loved me and gave himself for me. And then I can begin to attach myself to the approval of God. That in the gospel, he approves of me. He's accepted me as his son. He's given me his inheritance. He's given me all of that hope. And so then I can go and live amongst other people and love them and serve them rather than using them so I can get my own little ego massage. I can begin to serve them with conviction and freedom and not have to curb what I know is good and right and true just to get their approval. See, I learn to do that, and you learn to do that with your idols as well, through the ordinary ways in which God communicates to us. We do it by plumbing the depths of His Word, by hearing His Word, by meditating upon His Word, by taking those idols to God in prayer and asking Him to smash them in our lives and get rid of them, by remembering and savoring and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good through the Lord's Supper. Through, through what theologians call the ordinary means of grace, the word and the sacraments and prayer. And we also discover that by living out the Christian life together, with one another, in the church, with people who are going to say hard things to us, who are going to expose our idols, but who are also going to remind us of the grace and the power that's available to us in Jesus Christ and the gospel. We have to live our life together in the church. See, the church is not just a place where you get together to have a potluck and hang out with people who have the same political values and social values as you do and talk about new sports and weather. That's not the church. The church is a place to repent and heal and grow and mature and experience the grace of God that pushes these idols out of your life. So, approval. That's one of my idols. What are yours? What are your idols? Most likely, there are things in your life that are good things that have been twisted and turned and morphed and manipulated into ultimate things. See, the gold in the golden calf was not evil in and of itself. It's what the people did with it. It's because they began to worship it. What is it for you? See, if you're, if you're the person who, who tries to get a cheap fix while clicking through porn video, you're a person that has a real legitimate desire, right? For intimacy, for acceptance, for pleasure. Those are, those are things that are given to us by God. They're part of who we are. They're good things. We're created for intimacy. The guy is not a creep for wanting to have intimacy but see, pornography, it twists all that. It, it perverts the whole thing. It cheapens it. It tells you that you're going to get your fix met by clicking a link, but at the end of the day, it leaves you feeling empty and hollow and shallow and more detached than you were before. It actually prevents the very thing that it promises you. That's what your idols do. Idols make promises that they can never fulfill. All of that stuff, all of those desires, so many of them that we have, are not so bad when they're used in the ways that God intended us to use them and they're used under His Lordship 
and in the contexts and in the ways that He has called us to use them and under His authority. See, your idols are, are in many respects, good things that have been twisted into things of prominence in your life. They keep you from loving God and from loving others. And the reason why I say others is because you'll notice in the Ten Commandments, when you look at Commandments 5 through 10, all of that has to do with our relationships with one another. How we're to live together as people navigating life in this world. But whenever you break Commandments 5 through 10, you always break Commandments 1 and 2. You always break Commandments 1 and 2 as you break Commandments uh, 5 through 10. And the reason why is because when Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, he not only said that we're to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, but he said we are to love our neighbor as ourself. How we live our lives with one another, our ethics, is intimately tied to our worship of God. Now which God is it? We have to ask that question. Because we live in a world that doesn't seem to know the answer to that. We live in a world that tells us that there may be one God, but there are all sorts of different paths to get to Him. And we're forced to ask the question, on what grounds does one religion, one belief system, have the right to say that its God is true any more so than any other religion? Y'all, the day where Christianity is the default religion for people is over. It, it, that day's gone. It's not there anymore. I can't tell you how many college students that I've worked with over the course of my ministry who grew up in good, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Christ-centered churches who've come to the place in their relationships with their friends and in the course of their study who've come to me and said, you know what, I believe in the gospel. I believe in Jesus Christ. My hope is built upon Him. But who am I to say that the beliefs of those in my life who I love who do not believe are wrong and that they're ultimately hopeless without believing in Jesus Christ. Who am I to say that? That's the conundrum we live in. In fact, come to think of it, just yesterday I came upon a video that was promoting a book. A book by, the na- uh, by, by, uh, by a guy by the name of Rob Bell. And the title of the book is Love Waits, uh, Love Wins. And Rob Bell, he's probably one of the four or five most prominent Christian ministers in the country. I think Time Magazine called him the singular rock star of the church world. How's that for a slogan for a minister? And in this video about his book, Love Wins, he claims that God's love is so vast and so immeasurable that he would never sentence a human soul to condemnation. In other words, my friends, he's saying you can have eternal blessings no matter what God you worship, no matter what you believe. That's where your hope is. That's called universalism. It's what happens every time the gospel is assumed in our lives and then eventually gets ignored. It's a heresy of the greatest kind. It's a capitulation to a culture that cannot stand and cannot accept the idea that there is one true and living God who commands exclusive worship and will tolerate the worship of no one or nothing else. For God 
to, to claim exclusive worship upon our lives is an absolute that our world cannot tolerate. And even for those of us who haven't traveled all the way down that road, there's a sense in which we so easily find ourselves creating a God of our own imaginations. But see, the God who commands exclusive loyalty, exclusive worship above anything else, is actually the God who liberates you from slavery. He's the God who liberates you from bondage and from condemnation. Jesus constantly equated himself with the Father, saying that he and the Father are one, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And so this isn't just any God that we worship. It's the true eyed God of the Bible. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit calling for exclusive worship. So let me just land the plane here. There's a question that we need to come to grips with. You can't leave here today without coming to terms with this question. It's the question that Jesus asked Peter in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Because if he's Rob Bell's God, then who cares? If if he's one of many gods, then who cares? If he's one of several ways to God, then what difference does it make? If he's just an interesting ancient philosopher, why are we sitting here this morning instead of enjoying this beautiful weather? Why aren't we out on the beach? Why aren't we out on a fishing boat? If that's who Jesus is, it doesn't matter. But if he is the crucified and resurrected Son of God, then everything he said and did matters, and everything about him is worthy of our worship. Jesus' death and resurrection are what distinguishes Christianity from everything else. It matters because he alone is God and no others are. He alone is mighty to save, unlike any self-manufactured God. He's the one who sets us free from condemnation and makes us his own. He alone is the one who will bless you and none of those cheapo imitations that you and I manufacture all the time can ever do that, ever do that. He is the one true God. And he is the one who obeyed this commandment. At every single place that you failed, at every place that you failed to worship God fully with your whole heart, soul, and mind and strength, Jesus obeyed it. And when we rest upon him, he makes us law keepers too. He sees us as if we've obeyed this commandment perfectly. Not because he turns a blind eye to our failure, but because our failure was placed upon the one who was obedient to us. Our curse was placed upon him. And because that's the case, we get all the riches and all the blessings of his glory. What amazing grace that is. What amazing love that is. My friends, don't ever cease to be astonished by the beauty of that truth. And if that's the case, if that's who God is in Jesus Christ, Why would we do anything else other than love Him and serve Him and worship Him to the exclusion of all other gods? God is pursuing our joy and our joy is received as we pursue Him with all of our hearts. Let's think about that now as we come before Him in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for the way in which it exposes our idols, 
We don't like it, but we need it. And we need Your grace to cast those idols aside and to live lives that are wholly set apart to You, wholly committed to You, consecrated to You, because that's where our joy is found and that is where You are glorified. So do that in us. Make First Presbyterian Church a place that looks like that for the sake of Your glory and for the sake of our joy. And we ask this all in the name of Him who came such a distance for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.